Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good? Well, we're glad to be here with you guys today on this cold and fall, uh, I guess, is, is it fall yet? It's fall, can, technically. We're in Georgia. You say what? I do have a sweater on. I do. So it's cold enough for sweater, at least fall gear. Um, today's text um, is one of those that, um, if I'm honest, is extremely difficult to kind of take in because today's text, it really draws our attention to this idea of what it means to listen, what it means to truly hear, and in particular, what it means to listen to Jesus. I'll start first with the question of, have you ever been in conversation with someone where it seems as though every word that comes out of your mouth is met with a blank stare, their eyes gazing off into the distance as if what you are saying really has no value to them? Or maybe have you been in a conversation with someone where as you're talking to them, or better yet, that they themselves are a long and lofty speaker, that as they talk and go on and on and on, and they talk and talk and then talk some more, they finally come to a place where they're met with a break in sentence. And during that break in sentence, after about 15 minutes of dialogue, they ask you the question, so what do you think? Well, when asking what you think after 15 minutes or so, it's hard to really recollect what it is you were talking about. That's a lot to intake. And so you grasp or you try to comprehend and oftentimes you respond with the simple, yeah, man, that sounds good. Oh, yeah, no, I agree entirely with what you're saying. Knowing full well you really didn't grasp anything that that individual was saying. Oftentimes our inattentiveness to conversation is most clearly seen in our interactions with our spouse. For the fellas in here, there have been times where you're watching your favorite team or your favorite show, and in the middle of what seems to be one of the best moments in the game, your wife yells from the back of the house, or in the kitchen even, hey babe, can you go to the grocery store? And then she lists off 10 to 15 items that she wants you to get from the store. Instead of asking her, hey, babe, can you hold on one second? The game is going on. We sit quietly, pretending to actually hear what she's saying. At the end of it, she asks the question, babe, do you, you get that? Can you do that? And so we quickly say, yeah, yeah, I got that. What we'll soon find out is that the next day when we come back from the store, we've not only have we not gotten what she asked, but we've gotten a lot of the wrong things that she asked. And so we're met with the, babe, are you serious? This, in many ways, is how we listen to Jesus. That as he's speaking to us and as he's talking to us, we are very un unaware or inattentive to the things that he actually has to say. So the question I desire to ask each and every one of you here today is, do you listen to Jesus? Do you really hear and know what Jesus is asking and requiring from you? Now I can assume that there's probably two individuals in this room. One will be Christians. And so before I even was able to ask the question, do you listen to Jesus, that yes came to your mind immediately. You almost had to restrain yourself from uttering the words yes, because it was just that clear and that apparent. But for those who wouldn't say that they're not Christian, that word can produce a couple of feelings. One could be, Anxiety. I don't know what it means to follow Jesus, and I really don't care. 
Or it could spark an interest, the curiosity of who is this Jesus that you're talking about and why should I listen to him? What does he have to tell that, I, that, that will be important for my life? And so our prayer is that for the believer, but also for the non-believer, that we all would be slow to respond. We all would be slow and prayerful as well as cautious to mutter or utter off a quick and rash answer because the answer that we believe to be may not very well be the case. Over the last month almost, we've been going through the book of Mark, and the highlight of the book of Mark is Jesus. One thing you'll know from us here at this church is that on Sunday after Sunday, we're going to talk about Jesus because he's the most important thing in this life. He's the most important thing to us. And so we want to use the little time that we have with you here today to make him known to those who don't know him. But to those who do know them, we want to spend this time encouraging you to say Jesus is even greater than what you could understand or even comprehend. That there's still more affection, there's still more love that we can have for this Jesus. And so, therefore, we want to highlight him and give him the most attention. Up to this point, Jesus' fame has spread throughout all the land. So much so that crowds are gathering to him so much so that at this particular point in Mark 4, the crowds have gotten so enormous that Jesus has to retreat to a boat just so everyone around him could hear. Pastor John did an excellent job last week of contrasting the difference between Jesus' fans and his real family. His family being those who are committed to Jesus, not only in word, but also in deed. His family is distinguished by their, their trust of Jesus as a person and not just an appeal or a desire for Jesus based on what Jesus can do for them. Today we'll stay along the same thread or the same vein in that Jesus is now portraying or drawing a different contrast. He's going to take us deeper into what it really means to be a part of his family, but he's going to do this by focusing on two categories of people. True disciples and opponents. True disciples and opponents. You see, for Jesus, there really are only those two categories. We are either his disciple or we are opposed to him. And what the text argues or what the text hopes to bring to our attention, our awareness, is that he's going to draw our attention to four individuals. Four groups of people who respond to Jesus and his word in different ways. And as a result of their responding to Jesus in those different ways, there's different consequences. There's different reactions. The reason why I would argue that Mark 4, which for most of us we may be familiar with, at least if you've grown up in the church, is about the parable or what we've heard is the parable of the sower. We may have heard this in our Sunday school classes or at previous churches where the key emphasis is on the sowing of seeds. And from that sowing, we've probably gathered or gained valuable advice as to or encouragement of how we can evangelize and share the gospel more effectively. I would argue, though, that though there are good things within those truths, that that's not really the main purpose of this text. The main purpose of this text really centers on 
When we hear God's word, how will we respond? The main focus of this text really draws us into finding ourselves in, in, this, in this text with who is it that we are really saying we are following? As these three people or as these people hear God's word, the only real distinction is in how they respond. Notice that they all hear God's word. They all are in the crowds. They're all gathered to hear Jesus. Yet the only distinction is in how they respond to what he has to say. So let's take a look at the four varieties of hearers that we find in God's word. And prayerfully through this time, we'll find one another or find ourselves in this text. The first variety here is the unresponsive here. It starts in verse 1, which reads, Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. For those who are not familiar with what a parable is, a parable is simply a story used to illustrate a spiritual meaning. This is how Jesus, in many ways, taught a lot of the times because he wanted to draw us into what the meaning of the text was, is though it's not completely obvious upon first sight. If you're, I can assume that most of the people in this room probably have never done any farming before. So when a text starts to describe how a sower or a farmer plants seed, immediately that escapes our ability to relate in any way. So let me fill you in on what the text is describing, what it, farming looks like. Typically, a farmer would have a piece of land that he desired to plant seeds that would eventually produce a crop. Oftentimes, that land would harden over time and would become malnourished in its nutrients. And so what they would do is they would use an animal or some type of object to dig up the soil to, in a sense, turn it over in such a way that where now, when the seeds were planted, they had room and space for the roots to go deep, to have access to all of the nutrients and all of the water that it needed in order to produce a luxurious crop. However, in those beds, after they were harvested or after it was plowed, oftentimes there were pathways either around the perimeter of the crop or around the perimeter of the bed or even in between. These were there simply so that the farmer, once the plants grew up to a place where they bore fruit, they would have they would be within arm's reach. And so over time, as the farmer walked back and forth, this soil will become hardened again. And so as he's casting seed on these plows, some of the seed would fall onto the hardened ground. This is what is being described here is the pathways or the ground that has been so trampled on that the seeds are not even able to penetrate to the point to where they would be protected by the birds of the sky. Inevitably, these seeds are useless. They're no more than bird food, quickly devoured and quickly taken away. In order to understand what this parable is meaning, the best way to do that is to go to Jesus for the explanation. He explains what this means to us as he goes down into verse 14, 
and 15. He says that the farmer sows the word. Some people are like the seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. <coughs> no, <clears throat> excuse me. Notice who enters the scene in Jesus' explanation of this group of hearers. Jesus takes us to the place where now Satan enters the scene. He says that Satan comes in and takes away the word that was sown into him. Paul would allude to this very same thing in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, where he says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When God's word goes forth in a church service like this, or even at our home, or even at a Bible study, or even at a conference, when God's word goes forth, you can be assured that Satan is not far behind. Satan lies there seeking to devour and steal it away before it can provide any type of benefit to its hearer. And what are the benefits to the hearing of God's word? Well, Romans 10, 17 makes it clear that the benefit to hearing God's word is that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Salvation happens when we hear the word of God. So what better way for Satan to continue to keep our eyes blinded to the reality of what God intends to do as his word goes forth, but to steal it away so that he can somehow prevent God's intended purpose and plan, faith and salvation. Practically, how does he do this? What does this look like for in our everyday lives? One way he does this is by placing distractions in environments just like this. These distractions can be a pretty face that walks through the door. Thoughts about the football game coming on in a couple hours. Your favorite team lost last week, but this week is the week that they're going to win. And so during service, all of your thoughts are consumed with, man, I can't wait till that game comes on. He might even get you so focused on anger that you had with your spouse, the argument that you had before you even entered into church. I can't believe she said this. I can't believe he said that. Thoughts of bills needing to be paid or how they're going to be paid or all of the concerns and the anxieties that come with life flood into our minds. It seems at the right time, which is the hearing of God's word. We live in a day and age where our Bibles are on our phones. And so it's so easy that as you're reading God's scripture, as you're following along with the pastor, immediately what pops up on your screen is a Facebook post an Instagram message, and that leads to what? That leads to you clicking, responding even, and then remembering, oh, I'm in church. I must not do this. Satan hopes to distract you in any way he can because inattentiveness is his game. How can I get them to not really pay attention to what God has to say right here and right now, and he'll do it by any means possible. I want you to hear this because 
It's so important for us to be aware as Christians of Satan's schemes. Please know that any time you sit under God's word, you have entered into a time of spiritual warfare. It may seem subtle. It may seem as though, ah, it's not a big deal. But if Satan can cause you to forget and not pay close enough attention to what God's word wants to do in your life in order to help you grow in your spirituality, in order to produce faith, in order to get those who don't know Jesus, give them an opportunity to respond with faith and obedience to what Jesus is calling them to, you best believe that Satan is at work. It may not be important to you, but it's important enough to him, and that's why he's active. These set of hearers are merely prey to Satan. Pray to his schemes, pray to his devices, and they draw a deaf ear to what God has to say because ultimately they really don't care. Jesus' words are nothing more than good advice. They come and they go. We take bits and pieces based off of what we deem as important and don't holistically view God's word as nourishing and life-giving. I want to be careful, or I want to be clear in cautioning each and every one of us not to dismiss the reality that we're just, we're guilty of this very thing. We're guilty of hearing God's word and then immediately forgetting it the moment that the last song is sang, the last prayer is uttered. And you know the, re the way that I could probably find out that that's very true for many of us in this room? If I were to ask you, what was the sermon about last week? What was the sermon about last week? What are things that God showed you and exposed to you that caused you to sit down and to reflect and to pray and then make a plan to apply God's word? Most of our routines are we hear God's word and then we wait till Wednesday and then we hear some more and then we wait till next Sunday and we hear some more and we become bloated with God's word so much so that it's not producing really any fruit in our lives. This is an unresponsive hearer. This is someone who hears without real belief. They're unmoved and unmotivated by God's word, unstirred in any real affection. A great example would be how we treat the bulk of mail that we get in our mailboxes every day. If you're like me, on a Monday or a Tuesday, I come home to a huge pile of ads and coupons. Now, I'm not a couponer, so for those of you who are couponers, that's probably like gold to y'all. But for me, I just view it as junk mail. Why are you giving me all this stuff? I, I don't need it. I don't need this. And so what do we do? We either take it inside and put it on the shelf, and then eventually we'll throw it away. Or we just immediately leave it in the mailbox, hoping that the mailman would remove it so that we don't have to be bothered by it. Is this not how we treat God's word sometimes? We devalue it so much that it's there, but it's really not good enough or important enough for me to 
work through it so that it can benefit me or produce godliness within me. The heart here is hardened. The heart here is hardened to Jesus, and God is warning us that sometimes our casualness or our casual approach to God's word should be cause for concern. Some of us may be sitting here right now looking at our watches, anticipating for this time to be over with. We're all guilty of this. But what are some helpful ways to discourage our inattentiveness? One way that may seem extremely simple would be going to bed early on Saturdays. It seems funny. I know Saturday is probably the only night that we really have to enjoy ourselves. However, how can you attentively focus on God's word if you're sitting here yawning and dozing off on Sunday? Many of us have way more discipline in our bedtimes on that Sunday night because we know we got work in the morning. And that boss is going to look at us if we're dozing off. They could cost us our job. What if we had the same approach to God's word? That if we were sleepy during this time, that we would miss a word from God that could completely alter and change our lives. And I want to take the onus or the attention off of us. What if during this time God is preparing a word within us to share to somebody else for their benefit? But in our laziness and our lack of discipline, we casually come and sit, we listen, and then we go. Another way that would be helpful, I want to encourage us in being attentive as listeners, is that we would actually bring a Bible and a notebook to church with us. Now, I want to frame this statement with, the, with a clause in the sense of, we desire for you to hear and retain what it is that we're saying here on Sunday. But we desire for you also to be engaged. This is a time of worship. This is a continuation of worship, though different from the songs that we sing. We are worshiping a God by allowing his word to be applied and to prayerfully penetrate our hearts. So please take notes as much as it's beneficial. However, if you sit here and you don't want to take notes, the beautiful thing about technology is that you can go back during the week and listen to the sermon. I want to encourage each and every one here that we cannot apply what we don't know. You cannot apply the word that God has for you if you don't even take the time to remember it, to get to know it. There was a statistic that said that Upon the first listening, hearing, people only retain about 30% of the information given. 30%. If I were to preach a 45-minute sermon, that really means that for the only 15 minutes of that, you're actually going to remember. And I'm a bad mathematician, so that may be the wrong percentage. However, (laughs) the point is you don't retain enough. We cannot apply what we don't remember. Let's keep going. The second thing that we see, or the second individual we see in this text is the superficial here. 
He says in verse 5, some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. The second set of soil is somewhat harder to recognize. On the appearance, it looks as though all the ground that's been tilled is fertile until you dig a little bit deeper. After you've cast the seed and you water it for some days, the seed sprouts up quickly and it grows almost to the point to where you believe that this is probably the most valuable part or the most healthiest of the crop. However, as time goes on and as the seed is exposed to the elements, quickly that sun becomes too much for it. So as the seed would desire to go deeper and find nutrients and sustenance, it's met with a rocky bed. That in its desire to take what it was getting and to go deeper, the roots are met with a rocky bed, leading ultimately to its destruction. What does Jesus have to say about this? He says in verse 15, Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. These people hear the word and they receive it with much joy. They receive it with so much joy, but the consequences to the type of hearing that's going on here is that they eventually fall away. There's a veneer, an eagerness that's there, an excitement. However, oftentimes it is reduced to being hollow because it really has no substance. This can sometimes be the amen corner of the church. It could be your people who sit in the front row every single Sunday and will say and respond to you off of every word that you say. This sometimes can be those that come up to the pastor after they preach the sermon. Offering encouragement, great sermon, pastor. That was so inspiring. Now, I want to be clear, we enjoy that. <clears throat> That is very helpful and encouraging to us when you guys come and say, I was helped through what you said this morning. However, there's a danger in it. That sometimes these individuals are those who, though in their excitement to God's word, as quickly as it came is as quickly as it went. This is a superficial type of hearing. They hear without roots. They hear, but they too are unmoved or changed by what it is that they are hearing. We can see this in our church at times. The excitement of moving to the West End and reaching the West End is something that stirs up emotion. It stirs up excitement within us because we, there may be genuine desire to see God move mightily in this part of town. So we present our people with statistics and examples of what is lacking here in this part of town and what we believe the gospel brings to ultimately be a benefit to this community. However, in our quickness to commit to a church or to agree to be a part of a team or to put any real effort into accomplishing that, 
it's very quickly, it very quickly fades away. When we're confronted with the reality of what that means, that it, in order to do this, we're going to have to We're going to have to give of ourselves in ways that are inconvenient. We're going to have to commit to doing things that are by no means comfortable. After being presented with the cost of what it takes to actually see that happen, that excitement is replaced with apathy. The cost is too much for us to bear, and so we abandon ship. We abandon ship and we chunk deuces and the lasting impact we hope to see we put off or cast off on someone else. That's their responsibility, not ours. An author describes this best when he says, lightly come is lightly go. Two things are marked as suspicious for our Lord in such easily won discipleship. It's suddenness and it's joyfulness. Feelings that are so easily stirred are superficial. Quick maturity means brief life and quick decay. Think of the times that your infatuation with a girl that you liked or a guy you liked seemed as though it was genuine love. In the moment, it seemed as though I can't live without this person. However, as time goes on and you actually get to know this individual, you're Feelings of love and your desire to commit are often replaced with a feeling of, I don't really like that person no more. The quickness and the eagerness you were to commit yourself to an individual you didn't know was, over the span of time, seen to be superficial. Seen to be empty. Seen to be prompted only by mere emotion and not a sober and calculated approach to assessing what that commitment would actually look like, and even if you were willing to commit in the first place. In evangelism, we sometimes see this taking place where we want a quick response from those we share the gospel with. We share the right message, and we expect a quick profession of faith. This really, in more, most parts, is for our own conscience, to ease our own conscience so that we can feel as oh, we've been effective in our evangelism strategies. The danger is that, the danger is that, is that oftentimes we have false conversions. People who don't really understand what it means to follow Jesus, yet profess quickly enough to where it pleases us, but in the long run, they're nowhere to be found a year or two or three years later. This is not to say that God can't quickly save someone because we see in the life of Paul where God confronts Paul and quickly converts him and Paul's life is changed tremendously. However, this serves more as a caution to us that we would not be so quick or so abrupt to respond to Jesus without pausing first to count the cost. These are superficial hearers. The next group of hearers are the distracted hearers. Verse 7, he says, Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. 
If you were to drive by my house, on the far right side, there's a row of shrubs that during the spring and summer, they seem green and vibrant. However, if you were to look closely, you would find them to be no more than vines and ivy. That what existed there was a beautiful shrub. And now, though it has the appearance of greenness and vitality and health, what originally started as being a shrub, now it's been replaced with weeds. This is like the third group of people we're hearing about today. What does Jesus say about them? He says in verse 18, still others like seed sown among thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. These very much are people who are involved in their churches. They profess to even want to make disciples. They love the idea of Christian community, so much so that they're willing to invite others into it. This is probably the most subtle of all deceptions because somewhere the activity of these people has choked out the word so much so that it's no longer bearing fruit in their lives. They too are unmoved. This is an immature obedience, an obedience with conditions. In obedience with parameters, God, I will obey you in these areas, but I won't in those. They have the appearance of commitment and dedication, yet in the end, they too follow after worldly pursuits rather than kingdom pursuits. They are far more concerned with being rich and prosperous for the purpose of their own selfish gain than they are for the benefit of church or the benefit of others. They follow after their passions. They want the best of food. They want the nicest of houses, the finest of clothes. Their pursuit is for safety and security. The life is about fun. How can I enjoy this life better rather than it is about sacrifice? and service. Those things mentioned above are not wrong in and of themselves, but when they become the ultimate things in our lives, that's when we know that we've missed the mark. Obedience is seen, but only in certain areas. Is this you? Are you marked by these qualities and these characteristics. Distracted listeners, distracted hearers are divided in their affection. They're divided in their commitment. There will always be something else better in the moment than Jesus. And finally, we come to the last group of hearers. These are our fruitful hearers. He says in verse 8, Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, and some 100 times. Have you ever taken the time to just really look at God's creation with amazement? 
If you haven't been to Atlanta, the Atlanta Botanical Gardens, I would encourage you to do so because it's a place where you get to see probably some of the most perfect plants and shrubs and trees and flowers that you'll see anywhere. When you think of this example of fruitfulness, think of it as an example of the beauty that's created from our obedience that God desires to bear fruit in our lives in such a way to where those that look from outside see it and therefore are amazed at the God who is able to do that. Obedience isn't merely for our own benefit, but it's also for the benefit of others. At the Atlanta Botanical Garden, if you were to ask one of the groundskeepers, what is the secret to getting your flowers and your plants to look this good? And they would say it's all in the soil. In that soil is rich and it's fertile and it produces a gain that is bar none amazing. This is what the Christian life should be like. This isn't something that you should hear and be like, I can never have that or I can never obtain that. This is what the gospel produces in the life of his people. And so the question that we need to ask is if we're not seeing this take place, if we're not seeing fruit in our lives that is benefiting those around us, that should cause a red flag. What is the fruit of the Christian life? Galatians 5, 22 through 23. It says, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you're not known as a loving person, but when people offend you, you respond with hate and not love. If you're not patient with those who require patience, but are impatient. If you're not faithful to the things that you say you're going to do and follow those obligations. And on and on and on. This should be of great concern for us. This is what the spirit produces in us. He produces fruit bearing these things. And the expectation is not for us to be perfect in all those. However, there should be a measure of it evident in our lives. And we shouldn't be the only determiner that those things are present. This is why God gives us a family, so that others can identify the fruit of the Spirit working in your lives in such a way to, that it would encourage us and challenge us to grow deeper in our intimacy with Jesus. But the only way that this Fruit is born is by us applying God's word. Jesus in this parable makes it clear that there are two groups of people. Disciples, those who would follow Jesus and obey his word, or opponents, the previous three mentioned before. Any type of disobedience is disobedience. I, wanna, I, want, I want to speak to those who may say it can't be that easy. It just can't be that simple. Sometimes I obey Jesus and sometimes I don't. It's a real struggle. And I would affirm that with saying, you're right, it is a struggle. It is a wrestle. It is a battle. It is something that every day we have to constantly make a decision that Jesus will be the one who we obey and follow at his word. 
However, I believe the text is clear and that Jesus' purpose behind this text was to use these examples as a mirror to our hearts and our souls. God's word exposes what really is going on inwardly for a purpose. And that purpose is for healing. That purpose is for restoring us. Opening our eyes to see things the way that we should be seeing them. But there's a dual purpose in the proclaiming of God's word. Here we see that the second purpose of it is judgment. There's a danger to hearing God's word and not responding. If you would turn with me to verse 10, dead smack in the middle of this parable will find a, what seems to be an out of place story where it begins when it says, when he was alone, the 12 and the others surrounded him, <clears throat> others around him asked him about the parable. He told them the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they may turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? Jesus gives us a clue that he had a separate conversation. After, after the masses had dispersed, he was now alone with his 12. And while he's with his 12, he brings their attention to this very hard truth. At the first glance, this may seem as though Jesus doesn't want, Jesus wants some people, but not others. But I would argue that that's not the case at all, that the Bible makes it clear that Jesus desires for all men to be saved. So this isn't necessarily a text where we should infer a stance on whether or not Jesus wants some or doesn't want other. However, Jesus is letting us into the reality of what is the cause for our unbelief. Though he alludes to the different access his disciples have with them, here he is pointing to the reality that people have the opportunity to hear God's word, and yet they remain hardened. Helping us to see that the gospel in and of itself doesn't produce hardness of heart, but merely exposes it. That our continued unbelief or our continued response to God and his word is seen when God's word comes to us and we remain unchanged. To make it simple, the, there is a danger in hearing God's word and not responding. There's a danger to hearing it and not obeying. The benefit of hearing God's word is that it brings salvation to those who are lost and it produces fruit in those who are chosen, to those who belong to Jesus. I asked the question earlier, do you listen to Jesus? Some in this place may have kept the same answer, yes, I listen to Jesus. But there may be others who have changed their mind. When they hear about what proper or appropriate obedience and response to Jesus look like, there's probably cause for concern. I don't see myself 
as one bearing fruit. I find myself in the first three. I'm distracted. I'm unattentive. The reality is, is that if we're honest, for those who are Christian, we're guilty of breaking all of them. We sit and we hear and we turn our back on Jesus. We choose other things and make them as more important than Jesus. We're guilty of all of them. But I'm grateful that Jesus has made available to each and every one of us a righteousness that isn't based simply on how we perform these to the T. That Jesus has done what we could not do, which is to live the perfect life that whereas those who were distracted, Jesus was focused on pleasing the Father and did it with perfection. Whereas those who were inattentive to God's word, Jesus knew it in its entirety and obeyed it completely. This is the Jesus that we're talking about here. This is the Jesus that we're highlighting because this is the Jesus who, through his word, divides people and sorts them out. My encouragement to those who are Christians would be, as you see yourself in this text, that you would think carefully about how you can grow, how you can apply God's word in a way that it would bear Fruit, 30 and 60 and 100 fold. For those who are not Christians, I would invite you to know this Jesus who offers you what he alone can, and that's salvation. If if we're guilty of breaking these, if we're guilty of hearing God and being disobedient, then we are guilty of breaking all his laws. Jesus has been sent and he came, not so that, as the parable discusses later on, that he could be hidden or that the truth could be hidden, but Jesus comes in the same way a lamp is turned on so that we can see for ourselves what our reality really is and therefore, based on that, respond accordingly with obedience. Jesus, as we see in Mark 1, uses three simple words to call people to himself. Really two. He says, follow me. The mark of a disciple is seen in how we obey God, not what we profess with our mouths. That is the only thing that separates us. True hearing is seen in our obedience. Would you join me as we pray? Father, um, in many ways, Lord, we have failed to obey you fully. We know so much, Father, but yet we apply so little, God, and I pray that today you would produce within us a greater appreciation and a greater thirst for not only of the hearing of your word, but of the doing of your word. Father, will we surround ourselves with brothers and sisters in Christ who can hold us accountable for how we are applying God, your word, Lord. Father, would you encourage us with the hope that you, Jesus, have fulfilled what we could not. That there 
is no guilt or shame for those who are in Christ Jesus. But, Father, we can lean on the righteousness that you've given us. But, Father, we can also depend on you to strengthen us in order to obey you more fully. God, this is a task that in our own strength seems impossible. But I pray that we as your church and those who are here today, Father, would we press press into you all the more fully. Will we rely and depend upon you for strength to be obedient to what we know? And as we continue to learn, Father, will we do our diligence in seeking ways that we can apply to our lives? We can't do this of our own strength, Lord, and we need you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.